In our church in Orlando, and as many of you know that we pastored a church, we planted a church in Orlando in the year 2000. We pastored that church for about 13, 14 years. And in that church, we had a man who had played in the NFL for 11 seasons, 11 seasons in the NFL. And in fact, as the story goes, I was inviting some people to the church that had no idea who they were. They in turn ended up inviting someone. They all showed up for church and come to know that it was Cortez Kennedy who had played for the Seattle Seahawks. Cortez Kennedy. Cortez played defensive tackle for the Seahawks, and he was one of those dominant players. He earned eight Pro Bowl selections and was the defensive player of the year on a 2-14 and 14 team, <laughs> a team that won two games. He was the NFL defensive player of the year. So if that tells you about what kind of player he was. And then he was elected into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, and, and sadly, I do have to say that he passed, uh, Cortez has passed away. So I'm remembering my friend tonight as we're reminiscing about this. Cortez called me on a Saturday night in January of 2009. And I answered the phone and he said, you know, the normal, uh, hey, how you doing? Uh, good, how, how are things going? Great, all that stuff. And then he said to me, Charles, can I, can I throw you for a loop? And I said, okay, sure, go ahead. He said, Charles, I've got two tickets for you for tomorrow for the Super Bowl. Super Bowl 43. I, I, you know, it's very vague exactly what was going through my mind at that point, but I was, needless to say, I was very excited. And I said, wow, you know, thank you so much. And that, that, this is incredible. So all of a sudden, I was placed in that proverbial situation that is usually only discussed in hypothetical ways. If you suddenly received two tickets to the Super Bowl, who would you take with you? Right? Uh, every married man knows that the right of first refusal goes to your wife. Amen? Amen? And all the ladies said, Amen. amen. Okay, so we got the gay men's going here tonight. So, told Mary Jo, and of course she wanted to go, and we were on our way to Super Bowl 43. And it happened to be in Tampa. We were living in Orlando, so that afternoon we drove over to Tampa, Florida, which was about an hour and 15 minutes to, to the stadium area, and we found a parking spot, and it was just, we suddenly realized why they called the Super Bowl the show because it is the show. If you, anybody know Tampa at all? If you know Tampa and you know Dale Mabry Boulevard, which is like kind of a major road there, I think it's like three lanes each way and everything. So that whole road uh, right in front of the stadium was all cordoned off, coned off to, to handle 
uh, all the crowds coming in into the, the area there around Raymond James Stadium. And so we got up to the stadium, we made it through the security checkpoint, and as soon as we came through the checkpoint, we noticed that the band Journey was playing on a stage out here, and they were singing uh, Don't Stop Believing." right? Yeah, that was, that was it. And, uh, and so that was awesome. Uh, we made our way into the, the stadium, found out that, like, wow, Cortez had some really good seats. You know, we were right down uh, in the Pittsburgh Steelers end zone, and it was just amazing. Then, of course, the whole pregame festivities begin. That particular year, you had the crew from the U.S. Airways Flight 1549, you know, Sully. Uh, that, the whole crew was there. Uh, then you had Faith Hill that night who uh, powerfully sang God Bless America. Then after that, you had Jennifer Hudson who came out and sang the Star Spangled Banner. And it was, it was okay, Whitney Houston at Super Bowl XXV and then Jennifer like got right up there with it. So I don't know if that's on YouTube, but it was awesome. The game was amazing too. The first half of this game, I don't know if you guys remember it, it ended with James Harrison of the Pittsburgh Steelers intercepting a ball on the goal line and returning it 100 yards for a touchdown. It was the longest uh, interception return for a touchdown in Super Bowl history. I don't know if, it, if it's been tied or not. Um, but at that time, it was. And then the halftime came, and the, the halftime entertainment was Bruce Springsteen. And man, he came out and just began to sing all those songs that I remember from when I was a teenager, you know, born in the USA and all that. And then, of course, glory days, right? Glory days. And then we came back in the second half, and the, the game went back and forth, and the Cardinals went up deep in the fourth quarter, and it looked like, oh, you know, Kurt Warner's going to win one. You know, Kurt, Kurt's going to step up and win one. And wouldn't you know it, that, that Ben Roethlisberger drives the Steelers all the way down, and with about 30 seconds to go in the game, he drops back to pass, and he finds uh, Santonio Holmes on the back of the end zone, caught it, and just does this toe-tap thing, and the Steelers go up, and they win the game. They win the game. And then, of course, you know, everything else that's a part of that whole experience. The Super Bowl is an amazing experience. As human beings, we thrive on experiences like this. Our, our culture, if you look into our culture... It quickly, you will quickly see, and this isn't a newsflash, we know this, right? We thrive on having experiences like this. On any given weekend, and this weekend in the middle of summer is no different, there are stadiums and concert venues that are packed, even tonight, filled to the rafters with people wanting to experience that sports experience or that concert experience, and... It's, it's, it's what we seek. It's what we seek. We seek out these huge, huge experiences because we were born to glory in something greater than ourselves. We were born to experience a glory greater than ourselves. And in reality, the truth is we were born to experience the glory of God. Amen? Amen. We were made to worship God. We were made to experience and know his glory. And 
okay, I'm not saying there's, you know, football game, hallelujah, great concert, awesome. But if all we have is that in our life, we're, we're, we're missing what it is that we were created for, amen? We were created to experience that glory greater than our, ourselves to, to, to experience the Lord. The problem that we have as human beings is that we, uh, that generally people run to those man-centered experiences and they miss up on the God experience. They miss up right. out on the glory of God. And uh, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter one. He said, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They served the creature rather than the creator. Now, don't get me wrong. Nothing good with a fun football game or a concert. But if that's all we have, we're missing out on what God has in store for us. Now, we're going through Romans. We've been going through Romans with our biblical worldview series, and we've learned a little bit about the condition of man without God. And part of that is that that verse that I just read, that we, they worship the creator, the creature rather than the creator. And because the focus was on that, we have found ourselves in a situation, a desperate, needy situation uh, outside of that relationship with God outside of that place where we can experience the glory of God. Paul goes on in Romans to put it exactly like this. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory. We've, we've sinned and fallen short of the glory. And if left to ourselves, we will not be able to approach God. We will not be able to experience that glory. But God did something, amen? God did something about this enormous problem. God offered a perfect sacrifice so that we might approach and experience his glory. God offered this sacrifice on our behalf so that we would be able to experience the glory of God. Again, which is far greater than anything else that we could give our lives to, that we could experience so the question is, what is this sacrifice that he made? Why was this sacrifice necessary? What specifically did it accomplish? Well, it's so powerful, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross on our behalf. It's so powerful that it was laid out beforehand about 1,500 years in five sacrifices, not just one. So it took five Levitical sacrifices to demonstrate and show us what ultimately the sacrifice of Christ would be and is and, 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 and that he has accomplished. So God's perfect sacrifice is reflected in five sacrifices that Israel was taught to practice in order to worship God. Uh, and these five sacrifices, together they speak of the perfect and complete sacrifice of God through Jesus Christ. So tonight we're going to look at the, the very first one. We're going to be looking in Leviticus, we're going to be looking at what is called the burnt sacrifice, or as you may have heard it referred to, the burnt offering, okay? So the burnt sacrifice or the burnt offering. So let's look at this chapter of Leviticus 1, and this is the point. God wants you totally consumed in him. 
God wants you totally consumed in him. Let's pick it up in Leviticus chapter one, verse one, it says this. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, and he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and lay wood in order on, on fire. And then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on, on the fire upon the altar." But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord." And the priest, Aaron's son, shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is the burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds... Then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. And it shall, the, its, its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. And he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. And then he shall split it at its wings, but not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. God wants, God's desire for you and I is that he wants us totally consumed in him. He knows that there's nothing else that our lives were created for, nothing else that will quench the longing, nothing else that measures up to what we were created for. If man is going to worship God and experience his glory, then he also must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus told the woman at the well, he said to her, God is spirit and he's looking for worshipers. He's looking for worshipers and he's looking for worshipers that will worship in spirit and in truth. And so what this means is that God is not a God that you worship him however you want to. God is not a God that you just 
worship and do whatever it is that you want to do. There is a way to worship him, and it is in spirit and in truth. And so it, it, it is with the is with in spirit in, in that sense in with everything that you are bringing everything to the table, but in truth, in accordance with the word of God and the revelation of God. Amen. Amen. So, God gave a series of sacrifices that Israel would be instructed to make and to worship God with. And so, these five sacrifices were a regular part of. Uh, the Hebrews' life, the, their, their daily life and their monthly life, their yearly life, all along through their calendar, they would make these particular sacrifices. The, in that sense, the Levitical sacrifices show us how God is to be worshipped. The Levitical sacrifices show us exactly how God is to be worshipped. God has certain requirements, and those requirements are seen in the sacrificial system and each one of the sacrifices point forward to Jesus' self-sacrifice. Okay, so tonight we're looking here at the burnt offering or the burnt sacrifice, whichever, whatever way you want to call it. You, you call it the burnt sacrifice, you can call it the burnt offering. That's, that's cool. But this is what we're talking about tonight. The burnt sacrifice, it's all about being totally consumed by God, totally consumed in God, totally consumed for God. This is what the burnt sacrifice is about. If you were paying attention in the reading, you notice that, and they will burn all of it on the fire, right? Even after you clean the entrails and all that, you would still bring it all onto the fire to be burned. And that's the idea that, that we're consumed for God, that we're consumed for God. We learn in Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that our God is what? A consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And if you're going to worship God, if you're going to get close to God, if you're going to live for God, God's a fire. God's a consuming fire. He's not a little, you know, little fire. You're going to burn your little fingertips. Or no, no, no. He is a fire. He's a consuming fire. And you've got to let him consume you if you want to experience the, full, the fullness of God and the fullness of what your life is meant to be about. In order to be consumed by God, you must apply the burnt sacrifice to your life and you must bring the burnt sacrifice. Amen? Let's look at verse one. Verse one, God spoke to Moses at the tabernacle doorway and there he gave him instructions for making this sacrifice. In order to worship God, you must be consecrated to God. You must be set apart for God. The idea of the burnt sacrifice, there's a, there's a few key points in here. One of them is that, that it, it actually would make atonement for the person that was giving it. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So it made atonement, but it also consecrated the worshiper to the Lord. It consecrated, it set them apart as unto the Lord. If you were bringing the burnt sacrifice, then there'd be no reason to bring this sacrifice if you weren't saying, I'm all in. With Yahweh, I'm all here. This is it. We're going to just get this ox or this sheep or this bird. We're going to burn it on the fire. It's, all, it's going down. This is, this is how this is going to be. And, and so it's this idea of being set apart for God and totally consumed with him. But then 
God says something interesting about this particular sacrifice. In verse three, he says, he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Now, now I love this because whatever people would say, whatever anyone would say, God is not a God of coercion. And people say, oh, well, God coerces people into worshiping him. He, you know, he, he, he tries to, you know, you know, get us and coax us and, you know, uh, I don't know, bend our arm behind our back or whatever it is, he's, he's trying to coerce us. And let it not be said of the Lord because God is not a God of coercion. In fact, he says, the worshiper who brings the burnt sacrifice, he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. God only receives worship from those who want to worship. Amen? Amen? He receives worship from those who want to worship. He has given every person, he has given every person on the face of the earth, he's given them what is called freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience is the freedom to choose who you will worship. Now, this has been true and it's been said by many a Christian philosopher. I don't care who you are, you will worship. You will worship. You're just free to choose who it is that you're going to worship or what it is that you're going to worship. But you will worship because you were made and created to worship something. And so you've been given that choice. You've been given that choice and you can freely choose. Did you know that even Jesus himself modeled this idea of voluntarily worshiping the Father? Uh, Jesus went to the cross willingly. Jesus went to the cross and he laid his life down. In fact, in John chapter 18, Jesus, and he's, in that occasion in John 18, he's standing opposite of Pontius Pilate. And of course, you know, if you know the whole, uh, the, the, the arrest and the, and the, and the different uh, trials and interrogations that Jesus went through. You know, first he was uh, before Caiaphas, the high priest. We learned, we saw, saw that last week, right? And then he was before Pontius Pilate. Then he was with Herod and he went back and forth. He ends up being scourged. But during that process, he's before Pontius Pilate and he tells Pontius Pilate that you only have the power, you only have the power to take my life because I, because that power has been granted to you. That, that power has been given to you. And, and the reality is this, because Jesus Christ was laying down his life of his own accord. You know, we learned about that a few weeks ago that he could have called all those legions of angels. What was it, 72,000 angels? That he could have called? Probably more than that, but he just had to throw a number on it. Well, just, you know, the first battalion, the first group, 72K, you know, bring them on you know, get, get me down off this cross. No, but he laid his life down of his own accord. And Jesus said this in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was arrested. And you can read his whole prayer in John chapter 17, that he prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says this in John chapter 17, verse 19. I'll throw it up on the screen for you. It says this, and for their sakes, for whose sakes? For, for, for all of our sakes. For all of our sakes, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they 
also may be sanctified by truth. What's Jesus saying? For, for, for everyone's sake, Father, I sanctify myself right now for this cause, for this purpose that you have brought me into the world. He sets himself apart for that purpose. And so Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was arrested, he modeled for us perfectly what it is to voluntarily ascend to that place of worship, to voluntarily say, I am setting myself apart for the purpose of God. I'm setting myself apart for truth. So Jesus sets himself apart. And in that, he was totally consecrated for the work. Now, this isn't the moment that Jesus becomes totally consecrated for his life and for the purpose. I mean, you can go back. There are many places that you can look at. Certainly baptism. Baptism is one of those places that, that is, you know, it's the, it's, it, it's the death and the resurrection of the person. This is what it pictures, the death and the resurrection. That's kind of an all-in scenario there. That's not kind of like, well, I'm just going to, you know, dabble in. You know, no. Total immersion. The, the body goes down into a watery grave and comes up in, in the power of God. Amen? So it's the worship of God is all-encompassing. It's something that you give your whole self to. And, and what I'm trying to lay out here for you is that Jesus, the God-man, uh, modeled that 100% perfectly for us in the way that he lived. So Jesus, in that sense, was our burnt offering. He was consecrated. He was set apart. He showed us how to be set apart for God. So, you know, when the writer says, you know, he's the author and the finisher of our faith, that's, this is the type of stuff that he's talking about. When, when the writer of Hebrews is saying he's the author and the perfecter, he's the author and the finisher. Yeah, he's the one who wrote the whole thing and he's the one that stepped into time and became a man and lived it out perfectly and finished it. It went all the way to the end. And so then he's the model, amen? amen? That's why the admonition in that chapter is to keep our eyes on Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, this, the burnt sacrifice, the burnt offering had to be uh, made of your own accord voluntarily and it had to be brought without blemish. No matter which one you brought, whether it was from the herd, from the flock, or from the birds, whichever one you brought, it had to have been without blemish. The burnt offering was to be made of an ox, a lamb, or a dove, or a pigeon, it said there in the text. And it was to be a male without blemish. In that sense, it was to be pure. It wasn't to be, you didn't bring, you know, you didn't, oh, there's that, that one with three legs, you know, bring, you know, get him over here, you know. I was on the beach in Mexico. My friend in San Diego, we went down across the border into Tijuana, and uh, we went to the Tijuana de Playa or whatever, I don't know, and there was like three-legged dogs walking around, you know, and I was like, okay. You don't bring the three-legged one. You don't bring the one with the blemish. You don't bring the one with the kind of the quirky eye or whatever. No, you brought one that was without blemish. And in that sense, it was to be pure. Jesus, it was without blemish. Jesus was the perfect burnt offering. He was the perfect burnt sacrifice because he was without blemish. He knew no sin. There's many scriptures that talk about this, that, that he knew no sin. There was no guile in his mouth. He committed no sin. In theological terms, 
uh, for all you that have a minor in Bible, this is the impeccability of Christ, right? This is where Jesus is impeccable. And that's a third, it's not like he was impeccably dressed. It was, he was impeccable. He could not sin because he would not sin. He was perfect. He was without blemish. Jesus' trial before, the, before Pilate, uh, it's recorded for us. Pilate said in chapter 19, I find no fault in him. It was actually kind of, it, it, if you read the whole trial and crucifixion account, if you, if you read it all the way through, there's a couple times where it's declared and it should ring into our hearts, I find no fault in him. Even those wanting to find, you know, the other things were trumped up charges, right? He was actually, he was actually uh, put up on charges of treason, tax evasion, and that kind of stuff. Blasphemy. But they found, Pilate says, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. In fact, he goes, uh, he, okay, so Pilate's like wanting to, okay. I washed my hands of this. Remember his wife had warned him in a dream. Don't have anything to do with the Galilean. You know, she had a dream. So he's wanting to wash his hands, but the crowd is crying, crucify him, crucify him. He finally says, you crucify him. And of course they couldn't crucify him. There was the whole place was under Roman law. So he said, he said, man, he thought to himself, well, I'll have him scourged, right? I'll have Jesus scourged to bring him back up here. Then, then the crowd will go easy on him and uh, we, can get on, we can get on with this. But of course, that wasn't the case. But Pilate found no fault in him. He was without blemish. So then he became that perfect burnt offering sacrifice that could make a perfect atonement for sin for the people of the world. The perfect sacrifice without sin could make the perfect sacrifice that would atone for the sins. So if you look at verse four, go back to verse four of Leviticus 11. It says this, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him, to make atonement for the one that was worshiping the one bringing the burnt sacrifice. The burnt offering made atonement for sins. The person making the sacrifice placed their hand upon the animal on its head. And through this act, the worshiper identified himself with the animal and the sacrifice became a substitute. And so here you have, you have a substitutionary atonement. This is what you have pictured here, a substitutionary atonement. The animal's death and blood made atonement for the sins of that particular worshiper. You say, well, what is atonement? What is atonement? Maybe that's, that's not a word that you think about, you know, day by day, moment by moment as you're driving, you know, on Wickham Road, you know, <laughs> sitting at the light. Atonement. Jesus made atonement for us. The, the word in Hebrew is the word kippur. It's actually, which, which means to smear, to wipe, or to cover. The blood of the sacrifice, of that sacrifice without blemish, was smeared on the horns of the altar to consecrate it, to make it holy to the Lord. The blood of the animal was smeared and spilt to cover the sins of the worship, worshiper. And so in this sense, 
Atonement is literally a covering of those sins. It's, it's, it's an atoning for. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what was the declaration? What was when God came to talk to them? What was it? Well, we, we're naked. We're ashamed. We're naked. We're hiding in the bushes. We're making fig, fig leaf clothing, trying to cover the situation up. Well, that's not going to do it. Fig leaves is not going to cover this problem. And then that's when God had to make that sacrifice, right? He actually made the, the first atoning sacrifice in the Garden of Eden and covered them with the skins of that sacrifice. And this is what it's talking about in Leviticus. So fast forward to, to from Genesis 3 to Leviticus 1, and this is the atonement. This is the covering. Now, we'll get down to the Day of Atonement. That's a whole different thing, but that's all a part of the atonement being made. Amen? The priests kept the fire on the altar, burning. And they were instructed to make sure that it had plenty of wood on the fire. And uh, because you're going to have to burn this whole sacrifice. You're going to have to burn this whole sacrifice. So if you had one of those fires going, that like, you know, oh, do we have enough heat here to roast one more dog? Hot dog, not regular dog. Hot dog, we got, we got enough fire here to put one more dog on the Barbie shrimp? No. We need some more wood. The priests were instructed to keep the wood there to keep it going. Now, not only did it make atonement, but it also, the burnt sacrifice speaks to us of a pure heart and a pure walk. Amen? Verse 9, skip down to verse 9. It says this, But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. This speaks to us of the pure heart and pure walk of the sacrifice, of that one that is the sacrifice. So they would take the entrails, the insides, right? And the legs. What? You take the entrails and the legs and take it out back and wash it in water and then bring it back to burn it? You mean you just can't burn it? No. You had to go through this step. Now, thank God you didn't have to do that before you came to church tonight, amen? Nobody had to go out back and get some, clean some entrails and some legs and an ox, you know, a lamb, a goat. But what it speaks to us is the, the, the heart, the entrails. In, the, in, the, in Old Testament language, the, the idea of the, the inner person was, was it's all connected with the heart and the digestive system, this, this movement. <laughs> and it's this whole idea of the inside. And so they would clean the inside and the legs. And so it talks about this pure uprightness of heart and uprightness of of walking. Amen? The inside and the outside. And this is exactly who Jesus was, right? He had a clean heart and his actions were clean. Again, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Jesus was faultless and sinless. The psalmist in Psalm 24, Psalm 24 is a psalm, is a, is a psalm of what they call a psalm of ascent. Okay, a psalm of ascent is a psalm about worshiping God. It, um, the idea in Scripture about the worshiper is the the idea of a person who is a pilgrim. 
the idea of per, a person on pilgrimage. The worshiper is always ascending to the place of worship, going to the place of worship on the journey of worshiping God, right? So you read all about, you know, read any, most of those Psalms, Psalm 84, Psalm 24, Psalm, you know, there's bunches of them, right? So you have this Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 24, and in Psalm 24, verse three, it says this, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? What hill? The hill where God's temple was in Jerusalem, right? Who may go up to that hill? Who may go up and worship God? Who may go up and worship Yahweh? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So, first of all, this speaks to us of Christ. He's the one who could, who could go up. He's the one who could send the hill of Golgotha to make a perfect sacrifice on our behalf, amen? He had clean hands and a pure heart. He had not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. There was, literally, there's a line, there was no guile in his mouth. So in that sense, Jesus once again has demonstrated for us his, his 100% consecration to God, amen? Now, so we're making our way through through the total, total, con, totally consumed, the, the atoning work, the, 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 the voluntary, the voluntary offering of the sacrifice, the, the clean heart, clean hands, clean walk. And then in the middle of the chapter there in Leviticus, we have where it's lined out for us the specific instructions for the specific type of burnt offering that you were going to bring. And the burnt offering could be brought in one of three ways. Uh, from the herd, which would be from the cattle, right? The herd would be the cattle. From the flocks, which would be the lambs or the goats, sheep and the goats. And then a bird, either a turtle dove or a pigeon. These three options covered the, the strata of anyone's socioeconomic position. So for those that had money, they would bring the ox. For those that were kind of middle class, you know, they would bring the lamb. And then no one was left out. So, man, if you're just really, really poor, bring a pigeon, bring a turtle dove. Um, so it's interesting. These three examples are also further demonstrations of Christ's specific sacrifice for us. First, the ox. An, an ox was to be brought, an, a, 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 that one from the herd. An ox was usually brought for the burnt sacrifice by the rich. As it is more expensive than the other choices, the ox is an animal that bears the burden. We call uh, an ox like a beast of burden, right? You, the beast of burden. And so the, the beast of burden was the, the ox that would be used to plow the fields, uh, to, 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 to bear the burden, to carry the load. And the ox was used, in that sense, to do the work. The, the, the ox was a work... I almost said workman, but that would be rather a work animal. <laughs> it was a worker. And, and, um, and, and this sho so shows us the person of Christ. 
doesn't it? It so shows us the person of Christ. Jesus is the one who bears our burden. He bore our burden. He bore our sins. He bore it all. He carried the cross. He carried it up to the hill of Golgotha. He's the one that cares. He's the one that wants to bear our burdens even today. We've spoken of it as we've talked about bringing those burdens before the Lord. Why do we we talk about bringing our burdens before the Lord? Because he's the ox. He's the ox of the burnt sacrifice. He's the one that's going to carry the burden. He's the one that's going to do the work. He's strong as an ox. Right? He's doing the work. And he does it on our behalf. He does the work on our behalf. And he makes us clean before the Lord. Now the next choice was that you would bring a lamb, a, a, a product of the flocks in that sense. Notice the lamb was to be killed on the north side of the altar before the Lord. John the Baptist is the one who it's recorded for us in John's gospel, not in John the Baptist's gospel. John the Baptist didn't have a gospel, but the apostle John wrote a gospel. And in chapter one of that gospel, he said, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John the Baptist identified Jesus as the lamb. And so here is the lamb. The lamb was to be killed on the north side of the altar. So wherever the altar was on the north side. So they would find out north, south, east, and west. Okay, north side of the altar. And he was to be killed. That lamb was to be killed on the north side of the altar. When Jesus went to the cross, he died outside the city on a hill called Golgotha. Now, I, I just, just a little geography so you can understand this here. If you look at uh, the nation of of Israel, and the best way to understand Israel, as is laid out, is is kind of this north to south. Okay, so you had you had Galilee, you had Samaria, and you had Judea, right? So so Galilee in the north, uh, Samaria in the middle, uh, Judea in in the south, right? So you had uh, Nazareth and Capernaum and Cana up here in Galilee. You had Samaria, so you had Sychar and the woman at the well. And then down here, you had Bethlehem and Jerusalem and Bethany and all those places, right? So when the tabernacle became the temple on the Temple Mount, uh, when you looked at it, if you look at even, even if you take where there are two basic sites that Christians uh, today say where Jesus was crucified. The Catholics have taken the position that he was crucified and they've marked out this place and it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, right? Some of, some of us have been there, been inside the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, and then there's another place, there's another place that came under uh, British control during uh, that whole thing. Don't have time to go through that whole Mideast history, right? But uh, some, some, some British own this place, and it's called the Garden Tomb. And when you go there, at least for me, it was one of those things where, like, th- th- this is it. This has got to be the place. I mean, I walked into the Holy Sepulchre, and I'm like, well, see, the, 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 the issue was that the Byzantine Catholics went over to Israel into, into all those places, and they built churches over all the things. So they kind of, in one sense, they preserved the location. On the other sense, you have to walk in and go, okay, this is it, you know? Yeah, that tile is where he fed the 5,000 or something like that. Um, so 
Anyways, all of these are on the side of the north from where the temple was. And so the lamb was slain on the north side of the altar in the tabernacle. And so just as it was uh, said to us in the burnt sacrifice in Leviticus 11, Jesus perfectly fulfilled that as the lamb was slain on the north side of the altar. Amen? For us. And then one last choice, the bird, a bird. You could bring a bird. Often this was a turtle dove, or as it said, a a, a pigeon, a small pigeon. Uh, It is said that Joseph and Mary brought a turtle dove to the temple for sacrifice. And this um, could speak to us of of kind of where they were socioeconomically in, in in their standing. But the instructions were that you would bring the bird and you would, how does it say it? Ring off its head, right? I've never rung off a bird's head, you know. Don't ever plan on doing that. I'm not one of these. I'm not one of these. uh, Who was that guy in Australia? The guy? Steve Irwin. Irwin. You know, yeah, man. Now his kid. Have you seen his kid? His kid's going in his direction, doing all this crazy stuff with gators and, and all this stuff. But where was I? Oh, I, I would not rip off the head of a bird. But this is what had to happen. The head would be ripped off. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus wore a crown of thorns on his head. So the blood, blood poured forth. I guess there's, you know, they talk about these veins and, and, and these capillaries up here in the head and in the forehead and all that. Um, you know, when Jesus was in the garden and he prayed and he sweat drops of blood, this is the idea of where this blood is and there's a concentration of blood. I guess if you just kind of slit your head open, you'd probably, would you bleed to that? I don't know, but there's a lot of blood up in your brain, right? You know, that's what your whole circulatory system is doing right now is taking oxygenated blood up to your head. <laughs> and if somehow that gets cut off, you are in trouble, right? So there's a lot of blood. And so when Jesus wore the crown of thorns, the blood was, was, was coming out. The blood, the blood of that atonement, the blood of that perfect sacrifice, um, the blood of, of the bird. It's, uh, Jesus has spoken of that one that came from heaven above, kind of as a bird. You know, he came down and gave his life for us. Uh, it says the feathers would be picked, the the. The top and the feathers would be plucked out. As it were, Jesus had his beard plucked out. You know, he, he was spat upon, he was punched, he had his beard plucked out. Um, the bird was then would be split at the wings. Not split apart, but split at the wings. And you can just see as Jesus was split, as his arms were open wide as they were nailed to that cross, spread apart as he was nailed to that cross. And you can just think about Jesus on the cross as the, that heavenly bird from heaven that came down and had his, in that sense, his wings split apart on our behalf and the blood pouring out. It was just earlier that Jesus had talked about him wanting to gather the people under his wings, right? You know that 
section where Jesus is talking about, oh, I wanted to gather you. In, in Luke 13, 34, I'll actually throw that verse up on the screen. This verse always gets me. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus' arms were spread open like the bird of heaven, his wings spread out for you that you can come and find shelter and refuge under the covering of Christ, under the covering, the atoning work of Christ, under the power of God. And that is so much Christ's desire for each and every one of us. He would, as he cried out for Jerusalem, he would cry out for you. He would cry out for anyone across this world. Oh, that I would gather you under my wings. Oh, that I would gather you. Oh, that you would find that place under my wings. But unfortunately, Jerusalem, Israel, was that place that had rejected God over and over again. He sent the prophets to woo them back, to win them back. Oh, I still love you. If you'll return unto me and depart from your wicked ways, if you'll humble yourself, I'll, I'll heal your land. I'll heal you. I'll bring you back. Yes. You see the heart of God coming out uh, through the prophets, but they killed the prophets. They rejected. That last phrase is a chilling phrase where he says, but you were not willing. But you were not willing. Oh, let us be willing. Amen? Let us be willing to be gathered under the wings of heaven, under the wings of Christ. Amen? Amen. Salvation is found under the wings of the Lord. Now let's wrap this up. Because we're, wow, we went long, and I thought I was going to go short tonight. <laughs> the burnt sacrifice was to be totally burned on the altar. We read it through the chapter. Tonight, you can go and talk about, we went through Leviticus 1, the whole chapter. We read it, and as we went down through that chapter, if you caught it, it said, and, and, and burn it all. Clean the entrails, the legs, whatever. Bring the fat, the head. Burn it all on the altar. The burnt sacrifice was to be totally burned on the altar. It was to be totally consumed. Jesus was consumed with being the burnt sacrifice. There was a time in Jesus' ministry. You know, he was from... Nazareth. He was born in the south. He went to the north. During his ministry, he traveled back and forth. And then he found himself, he was back up in the north. And then there's this moment, this moment in time that is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke, where Luke says, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. And it's found in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. I'll throw it up on the screen. It says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the idea. This is what it means to be totally consumed for him, for the Lord, 
for Yahweh. In Jesus' case, as a man, he's the God-man. In, in his nature as a man, he's submitting to Yahweh. Even as the second person of the Trinity, he's submitting to the order and the structure within the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so you see that he is totally consumed for the Lord. It was for this purpose that he came into the, the world to lay down his life so that you and I might find eternal life so that we could experience the glory of God that we were created to experience. The glory of God that Adam and Eve literally did have upon them and noticed when they had sinned that something was gone and noticed that they were missing something and that they were naked. It is in his sacrificial death and resurrection that Jesus was totally committed, totally consumed, totally sold out 100%. And I close with this, and I want to take you back to verse seven, uh, 17. And this is a refrain. At the end of verse 17, there's a refrain that you had re repeated twice already in the chapter. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. A sweet aroma to the Lord. So the burnt sacrifice is a sweet aroma. Now, anybody knows, I mean, even, I don't know, I guess for the vegan, maybe it's, you know, you're conflicted. <laughs> you know, but when you smell that steak on the Barbie, you know, when you pull up into your neighborhood and you go, oh, somebody's got the grill going. You know right away, right? You're like, oh. You're like, honey, why aren't we doing that tonight? Where did we go wrong? We don't have the grill fired up. Oh, honey, right, I'll, I'll no, no. She, she's got this, Mary Jo, she's got this indoor grill thing now. You know, so she can, she's whipping up these steaks. They, you know, the indoor steak, the indoor grill, great. It doesn't have the same smell, you know? <laughs> it doesn't have the same smell, right? When you put that, that's why these restaurants that talk about wood burned, right? Wood, you know, that there's this, um, remember, remember uh, what was it? Kenny Rogers. <laughs> remember Kenny? <laughs> I don't know where I just dug that out of. I just pulled that out of left field, really. Remember Kenny Rogers Roasters? Yes. It, their slogan was, it's the wood that makes it good. <laughs> so here's the question, and I close with this, with Kenny Rogers Roasters. Tweet that out. See, I give you good tweeting material, but I don't see any of you going to Twitter and hashtagging. It's the wood that makes it good. The wood of that sacrifice that burnt that sacrifice as that thing was being consumed by that fire. The text tells us it was a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now I have to close with this. I have to close with this. If I can have you... How many times have I said in closing? How many times? Okay, I know where I get this from, my dad. 
Okay, my dad was a long-winded preacher. I used to sit on the front row and listen to him, and I actually had a, a, a notebook that I would actually keep a tally of how many times he said, in closing. True story. That's, you get a little idea. <laughs> Paul, the apostle in Romans chapter 12, what does he say? He connects Leviticus 1, Romans 12, 1, in view of everything that God has done. He says, in view of God's mercies, I beseech you, brothers, to present yourself as what? A living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto the Lord. The picture of Romans 12, 1 is the picture of the burnt offering, the burnt sacrifice. What he's saying is put yourself upon the altar to be burnt by that wood, to be consumed by that wood, to be a sweet aroma for the Lord. And in so doing, if you'll be that one that is consumed by God, you will be a sweet aroma to everyone around you. You will be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Well, not everyone around you. Some will, some will not like it. But the Lord will and you will experience the Lord and his glory, and you will be going on and on forever and ever with the Lord.